Welcome to Preserving Valor, a podcast dedicated to saving the personal stories of veterans. My name is Jay Vissers. This is the second episode in the story of Wesley Lusmore's World War II service. I'm again joined by Bernard to help by reading excerpts from Wesley's manuscript. Hello again. Let's get started. When we left off, Wesley and his crew had just been sent to the staging base in Kearney, Nebraska. They began equipping us for air combat right away, and we knew we wouldn't be there more than a few days. We got our AEPO address, and it was a New York one, so we guessed it would be Europe for us. The crew was issued new gear, parachutes, survival equipment, lightweight fur-lined winter flying clothes, and finally, a brand new B-17G that they were assigned to fly overseas. Wesley bought a $10,000 life insurance policy and secured a watch with a second hand from the PX so he could keep accurate timings while working on the radio. During the flight across the Atlantic, it was his job to get radio fixes in order to track their location. We left Kearney by plane, our new B-17G, on June 4, 1944, for Dow Field, Bangor, Maine, our embarkation base. We flew at night, and shortly after takeoff we ran into a thunderstorm. Our pilot, Jenkins, called our attention to the prop tips which were trailing St. Elmo's fire, and it looked like four rings of fire. They spent little time in Bangor, resting, being issued their personal 45 caliber pistols, and leaving again for Newfoundland. But Wesley remembers the landscape in Maine, reminding him of home back in Michigan's Upper Peninsula. In Newfoundland, they topped off the gas tanks for the trip across the Atlantic Ocean and left for Nuts Corner, Northern Ireland, on the evening of June 6, 1944. We had a good flight over, but the sky was mostly cloudy, so we couldn't see much of anything. We did spot a few icebergs through the cloud openings. It was cold in the airplane, too, and we made good use of our warm winter flying equipment. I heard reports of the D-Day landings on my radio on the way over. First, I had heard the news. BBF Well News, Bob Trott speaking. And again, we bring you the available report, all of them from German sources, on what the Berlin radio calls the invasion. There is still no Allied confirmation from any source. Correspondents who rushed to the War Department in Washington soon after the first German broadcast was heard were told that our War Department had no information on the German report. There's been no announcement of any sort from Allied headquarters in London. The first news of the German announcement reached this country at 12.37 a.m. Eastern Wartime. The Associated Press recorded this broadcast and immediately pointed out that it could be one which Allied leaders have warned us to expect from the Germans. Shortly after 1 a.m. Eastern Wartime, the Berlin radio opened its news program with a so-called invasion announcement. Columbia's shortwave listening station here in New York heard the Berlin radio say, and I quote, here is a special bulletin. Early this morning, the long-awaited British and American invasion began when paratroops landed in the area of the Somme estuary. 
The harbor of La Havre is being fiercely bombarded at the present moment. Naval forces of the German Navy are off the coast fighting with enemy landing vessels. We just brought you a special bulletin. End of the quotation. That is the invasion announcement as heard from the Berlin radio by Columbia shortwave listening station. On landing in Northern Ireland, Wesley was immersed in what, to him, was a strange new world. Money was in pounds, shillings, crowns, and pence. Driving was on the left side of the road. He could hardly understand the locals, who explained to him that it was a rainy season there. He described the land in his manuscript. The fields were full of buttercups, and the grass was green and ready for cutting. The houses were small, old, and made of stone, and had thatched roofs. One nearby farmer had his barn on one end of the house under the same roof. The farms were small, and most seemed to have a couple of cows and some chickens. There were few fences. The fields were separated by stone and live hedges. The crew reluctantly left their brand new B-17G behind and traveled by boat and train into England for orientation and training, which included some security protocols, operational orientation classes, and Morse code practice. There, they also had their first chance to go into town and become acquainted with English pubs, where people gathered to talk, sing, throw darts, and drink warm beer. Wesley wrote, Local women were usually there in numbers and freely without escorts, singing up a storm. They knew most of the popular American songs, sometimes craftily adding their own words and verses. The women on the home front were drafted, and some were assigned to work on farms and in factories. The women's land army were issued work clothes and were paid a small government wage, but they really worked hard for the war effort. I saw calluses a quarter inch thick on some of their hands. But their evenings at the pubs were an opportunity to socialize and relieve their stress. As of June 27, Wesley's crew was assigned to the 359th Bomb Squadron, 303rd Bomb Group, at Molesworth, known as Hell's Angels. When they arrived at Molesworth, they were assigned to their barracks, a Nissen hut that housed the crew of two bombers. The curved culvert-like structure held a coal stove, two bare light bulbs hanging from the ceiling, and had a door at either end. It was furnished with bunks, a few chairs and folding tables, and a radio that could be tuned to BBC, the Allied Forces Network, or Axis Sally, an American woman who broadcast Nazi propaganda from Berlin. This is Berlin calling. Berlin calling the American mothers, wives, and children. And I'd just like to say, girls, that when Berlin calls, it pays to listen. When Berlin calls, it pays to listen in. Because there's an American girl sitting at the microphone every Tuesday evening at the same time with a few words of truth to her country women back home. Girls, you all know, of course, by now, that it's a very serious situation, and there must be some reason for my being here in Berlin. Some reason why I'm not sitting at home with you at the little sewing bees, knitting socks for our men over in front South Africa. Yes, girls, there is a reason, and it's this. It's because I'm not on the side of President Roosevelt. I'm not on the side of Roosevelt and his Jewish friends and his British friends. 
because I've been brought up to be a 100% American girl. Conscious of everything American. Conscious of her friends, conscious of her enemies. And the enemies are precisely those people who are fighting against Germany today, and in case you don't know it, indirectly against America too. Wesley wrote, Mostly it was tuned to the FN, where we could hear the latest swing, jazz, and Dixieland music. All the touring entertainers made guest appearances there as well, and we got all the news of importance from home and progress reports on the war. This is Fred Allen, fellows. When the war first started, the Army rounded up a lot of old actors and said, we want you hams to get some shows together. We're going to send you overseas to entertain the boys in service. Well, according to the good news we've been getting back home here recently, you fellas are going so fast, the actors can't possibly keep up with the troops. Now, you can't expect a lot of wind-broken old actors to keep up with you guys in jeeps. So I guess the only way I can overtake you boys is with a radio show. And that's what I have for you now. Our guest star is Orson Welles, who started out as a boy prodigy and lived up to it. We've got Benet Venuta, the famous Broadway singing star. We have Portland, the mighty Allen Art Players, and Al Goodman's Orchestra. The program opens with Irving Berlin's hit song, This is the Army, Mr. Jones. At the station break, they would say something like, This is the AEFN broadcasting to you men and women of the Allied forces in the ETO on the road to Berlin. Bunks in their hut consisted of flat wire springs with three square pads, which the men could fit together on the frame and cover with a wool blanket to smooth out the cracks. They covered themselves with another wool blanket. As poor as the accommodations were, it was always a welcome and comforting place to come to when dead tired after a mission. Sacks contributed to the unique odor of a Nissan hut, as did the bundles of laundry behind the bunks, the flying clothes, the coal stove, and the bodies of the gunners, which exude an odor of fear and anxiety that came with the job. The smell was compounded by their own procrastination. As Wesley admitted, the tired men often opted to sleep, write letters, or play poker instead of keeping up with maintenance in the Nissen hut. The laundry and cleaning tended to pile up too because it took several days to get it back and one never knew when it would be needed. Sometimes we opted to clean our uniforms with aviation fuel, which worked fairly well, but it was hard on the hands. The 4th of July arrived before Wesley's crew flew their first mission in Europe. However, during the day, they took a training flight and flew around the area, fired the guns over the sea, and familiarized themselves with some local landmarks. That evening, the base had something of an informal Independence Day celebration. There was a grand display of fireworks most of the night. The airmen were shooting off flares, and one nearby farmer's haystack caught on fire. Every time an appeal to stop came over the PA system, another volley of 50 or more flares went up. The next day, 
Wesley's pilot, Lieutenant Jenkins, flew a mission with another crew, and on July 6, his crew flew their first mission together in a B-17 named Liberty Run. We bombed some launching sites for V-bombs at Beaumets Les Air France. The mission was a real milk run, but it served to introduce us to the procedures to be followed. On the afternoon of this, our first mission, King George VI, Queen Elizabeth, and Princess Elizabeth visited Molesworth, accompanied by General James Doolittle, 8th Air Force Commander. I didn't see them, since we had been on a mission. I was not aware of the preparations or plans for the tour, but heard about it later. It probably was not publicized anyhow for security reasons. On their second mission, the dangers of the war started to set in. While there were no casualties, two crewmen on other aircraft were injured, and seven aircraft on the mission took major damage. The realities of the air war began to hit home after this mission, but one of the nice things they did to help relieve stress was to offer the crew members a double shot of bourbon, fruit juice, and hot coffee during the debriefing period. Then we got tickets to a mission dinner, which was super. After that, it was mail time and sack time. American bombing missions took place primarily during daylight, which meant an early start for Wesley on mission days. They would be awakened as early as 2 a.m. depending on the weather and distance to target. Within 15 minutes, a truck would arrive to take them to the mess hall for breakfast, where they would eat heartily. It could be a long time until we would be back for our next meal and flying at high altitudes, cold temperatures, under nervous tension, and on oxygen, the body used up energy at a rapid rate. After breakfast, they would have a briefing on the mission, receive their aircraft assignment, and, as radio operator, Wesley would receive code and frequency allocations and other communications instructions. Then a truck would take the crew to the aircraft that they were assigned for the mission. Each crew member carefully checked the guns and equipment he would be responsible for operating, even though the ground crew probably checked them already. But it was our lives at stake, and we wanted to be sure, and it helped to be doing something while waiting for takeoff. Wesley is proud to have flown in several of the aircraft featured in the mural Fortresses Under Fire at the National Air and Space Museum in the Smithsonian Institute, including Bonnie B a storied aircraft that they flew for the first time during their fourth mission. The plane was named after the first pilot's newborn daughter, who Wesley had the chance to meet in 1997. The plane itself, unfortunately, did not survive the war. The demise of the airplane came on September 5, when she crash-landed near Paris after a bombing mission to Ludwigshaven, Germany. She completed 93 successful missions and aborted only seven times, for which her ground crew deserves a lot of credit. The next few missions they flew were over Munich, which was being bombed heavily in order to limit Nazi diesel engine production. Our Munich runs were some of the longest ones I flew, and were about as far as the B-17 could carry a load of bombs effectively. We had to fly at high altitude for a long time over enemy territory, and this was tiring on the crew, being on oxygen at low temperatures and minus 20 to minus 50 degrees. At this distance from our air bases in England, we were also at the fringe of effective fighter support. We get to our briefing in the morning, early morning, 
they start stretching that tape out, you know, to outline our route to to our target for the day. Boy, when that thing stretched over Germany, we'd all, you know, let out a big sigh. <laughs> Here goes again. <laughs> and we would, and I mentioned there, it seemed like our clothes would get this stink, stink from uh, fear. I don't know how it came out in this. It must count come through the skin because our our clothes would be stinking. We'd get back to the barracks and hang up our clothes, and the barracks would be stinking <laughs> from the fear. On July 21, we got a 48-hour pass. We probably became eligible after 10 missions. Some of us went to Nottingham. It was nice to sleep between sheets at the hotel, but it was hard to find good food in town. Cake, pie, all sweets and meats were extremely scarce. Actually, we got better food on the base than we could get in town. The food on the base was pretty good. They had lots of, you know, breakfast and lunch. You gave you lots of selection. You could make anything you wanted almost. But And meats were available at, you know, from the U.S. But in Britain, when you go to the restaurant over there, about the only meat you could find on the menu was mutton, because they had sheep. Sheep, they had lots of. They had lots of fish too, because well, Britain is an island, so there was lots of fishermen supplying the fish requirements, and and so fish and chips was a common uh, thing to order at the at the restaurant. You couldn't get beef. Beef was out of sight, you know, for, for the civilians. While their crew was gone, the crew they shared the Nissen hut with had to ditch their plane over the English Channel. Their mission had been prolonged, so they ran out of fuel before being able to reach the airfield safely. The crew had just returned to base after we got back, having been rescued from the drink. They were very happy to get back, and we were happy to see them too. The crew chief was very sad though, having lost his airplane. Hungry for a taste of home sweet home, Wesley wrote his mother and asked her to send some sweet mincemeat squares wrapped in wax paper. Mincemeat is a combination of meat, spices, and dried fruit that is often used as a pie or pastry filling. She did send some, but when they arrived a month or so later, they were mushy. So I had to write and tell her to forget about sending any more. Wesley flew in several missions in northern France to support the U.S. First Army with strategic bombings during the Battle of Normandy. During one of these missions, a bombardier was startled by a full packet of chaff hitting the nose turret and dropped bombs on a friendly airfield, killing four and wounding 14. Wesley always felt the radio operator who deployed the chaff wrong shared responsibility for the tragedy. 
Dispensing the radar-scrambling chaff was another responsibility of the radio operator. Wesley would hold a bundle of the thin metal strips loosely in his hand and let the flow of the air suck them out a tube near his radio, little by little. This chaff was dispensed during the entire bomb run because during this period when formations had to maintain steady and predictable flight pattern and could not take evasive action, we were most vulnerable to anti-aircraft fire. There were no enemy fighters threatening us at this time because the air was usually saturated with flak and there was not much we could do about it but sweat it out. We kind of felt like sitting ducks in a shooting gallery. The gunners on the crew could do nothing but wait for the bombs to be released and hope they weren't hit by anti-aircraft fire. I don't believe there were any atheists on our crew or in the sky for that matter. This was a compelling time for me to get close to my maker. For me, it became routine during this period as I was dispensing chaff with the sound of exploding anti-aircraft shells and the jouncing of the airplane from the closer explosions that I would carry on my conversations with him and with myself. I recalled often in the years following the vows I made to myself that if I ever made it through this thing that I would try to lead a good Christian life. I have tried over the years to fulfill those vows, and I hope I have succeeded to some degree, at least. After the bomb run, everyone was relieved, and activities resumed like everyone had gotten a shot of adrenaline. The interphones got busy, and the gunners concentrated on watching for enemy aircraft, and the pilots and navigator figured out how to best get out of there. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Preserving Valor. We'll continue Wesley's story in the next episode. Don't forget to subscribe to catch every episode as it releases. You can also visit preservingvalor.com to subscribe to our weekly email, check out previous episodes, and find links to our social media platforms. Preserving Valor features interviews with real American veterans. If you're interested in sharing your story of service, you can reach out via email to preserving.valor at gmail.com. And as always, a huge thank you to Wesley and all the veterans who served alongside of him.